0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. is from the holy spirit she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins all this took place to fulfill what the lord had spoken by the prophet behold and this is quoting the old testament behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name emmanuel which means god with us and for the next three weeks i'm going to just preach on what it means for god to be with us god is with us in his first coming god is with us in the second coming and god is with us uh, by being in us through the power of his holy spirit and in this the sermon that i'm going to preach on on the holy spirit i hope to uh, give us some answers to be able to first understand what it means for the spirit to be active in our lives and second uh, to answer the question i have been posed this question three times this week uh... in a a mixture of form of what denomination are you and are you charismatic and the answer to the charismatic question is yes we are charismatic uh... and no we are not charismatic and it depends on how you define that word those that one word means two very different things within christianity depending on who's asking the question Uh, and so i will get into that uh, in, in a sense of charismatic being a form of Pentecostalism that is very prevalent in the televangelist world, um, the Benny Hens, the people who are pleading for money, screaming at the screen, asking you for money, uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is so much of that segment of the charismatic movement the answer would be an emphatic, no, that is not who we are. But a lot of people... Uh, this conversation with a preacher recently uh, and to him and to a lot of people to be charismatic simply means do you believe in the gifts of the spirit the working of the Holy Spirit is for the church today which is a more accurate definition because that's what it means charisma the gifts do you believe in that the gifts of the Holy Spirit the working of the Holy Spirit is for today and in that sense say emphatically yes we are, in that sense, we are charismatic. So that's where I'm going the next three weeks is to talk about that as well and what it means to be spirit-filled. Let's pray. Father, your word is uh, forever settled in heaven. I thank you for it today. Uh, I thank you that your word inspires the, the affections of our heart uh, towards Jesus Christ, that we may love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we may love him rightly according to your word. So bless these next few moments of time and let your anointing be in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are in the season of Advent. Jonathan Bonomo, a pastor in Philadelphia, wrote these words a few days ago. He said, the season of Advent begins tomorrow. So before I read you what he says, let me... Let me define a couple words that you may not be familiar with when I read his quote. One is he says liturgical calendar. What does that mean? That just means that some churches follow a very strict calendar that's preset like a prayer book. And they'll follow a liturgical calendar throughout the year. And what the preacher preaches on is predetermined by this liturgical calendar. We don't do it that way. I'm not opposed to it. We just don't go that strict into a liturgical calendar. The second word he uses is, he says, over-realized eschatology. All that means is that you believe so much that the first coming of Jesus is really where everything was at, that all the promises of the kingdom are fulfilled now, and that there's really not much left in the future. It really diminishes the meaning of the future return of Christ. I am far too much of a broken human being to believe and would be so disappointed if I thought this is all there is. I long for the consummation of the kingdom through the second coming of Jesus. That is where he will come back and establish and finish everything this is why we talk about the already not yet the kingdom of god is here but it is not yet here i am already sanctified but i am not yet sanctified so that's where he's that's what these two words mean so listen to what this pastor said i think what he said is very noteworthy about how we should look at advent the season of advent begins tomorrow whether you like the idea of a liturgical calendar or not one thing I appreciate about a properly observed Advent season is that it is a good safeguard against the overrealized eschatology that marks much of the pageantry of the modern-day Christmas season. And he has Christmas season in quotes. So what he's saying is that Advent balances out what we do when we celebrate Christmas. For the message of Advent is that our true hope awaits future fulfillment and it will come simultaneously with divine judgment against all injustice all idolatry and all hatred in our world so all of this what he's saying is that all of this that we see the nonsense the injustice in the world that is because of the fallen nature of humanity when Christ returns our future hope of fulfillment will at the same time with come with Christ coming and making all of this injustice right The message of Advent is not a plate of cookies and a cup of hot chocolate on a cold December day. It is rather the eternal fire of God come and coming to burn away the cold dark winter of our sin and our misery once and for all and to shine its light of peace and holiness and life throughout the earth and to the age of ages world without end. The idea of Advent is that, yes, we celebrate the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, but we earnestly await the future return of Christ. So let's talk about this morning the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus, first and foremost, is a historic reality. It is not a fairy tale. If you could travel back 2,000 years ago and find a particular place in the Middle East, you could find... A woman giving birth to a son. It is a historic reality. And I I think that the people of God at times, I know I do, we get frustrated by how all the culture around us and the political landscape and how the social issues affect us. It's like, we're the people of God. We shouldn't be affected this much by all of this nonsense that's going around. And I'd say, no, it has always been this way with the people of God. Even the story of the birth of Jesus was shaped by current political events. God's redemptive purpose has always and will always unfold within the context of our society. The birth of Jesus was not a hallmark moment. This was a very ordinary moment on the surface. No one around Mary and Joseph knew the significance of the birth unless it was pointed out to them by a supernatural sign. We were at a Christmas music deal the other night, and I sat there and thought, the birth of a child 2,000 years ago has inspired and created all of this pageantry. And we go and we enjoy it. We enjoyed listening to the Christmas music. It inspired Handel's Messiah, which has been performed and celebrated for hundreds of years. It inspired a, um, I don't know if you've seen it this week, but a church in Plano. Um, it does a million cost well over now a million dollars to produce their Christmas play there's a thousand people in it we've went to it twice I enjoy it I have no problem with it because it's not a church service this is a play it's bigger than any Broadway production I mean it is but this week in the news it's even made national headline news this week um, because now people are protesting their play because um, they have the thing in the news it was, it was on the headline of one of the main news places this week was they have flying drummers and they do they have drummers coming across the ceiling suspended and they're playing a little drummer boy on the snare and there's all these drummers hanging by cables descending from the sky um, now i have no problem with that because it's a play or this i'd have a real problem with that if that was in a church service like if you're trying to do this as part of your corporate worship i have a problem with that I have no problem with a play because the nature of a play is it's theatrics, it's a production, this is what you do. And yes, it cost over a million dollars for them to produce this, but they get that and more back in ticket sales. Uh, but my point being, it's irrelevant which side of the conversation you fall on, my point being is that this was inspired. Like you'd go to this, go, wow, the the king is here. I mean, it's just pageantry. It's, it's a how many people are in the choir I think it's 500 people that they have in the choir in this thing I mean it's live animals of like crazy animals coming on stage I mean it, it's a performance but none of that was the case the night that Jesus was born it was just another baby nobody took notice that the God of the universe the Yahweh of the Old Testament has manifest himself in flesh We see glimpses of this in Jesus' life as a child when he's 12 years old. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple because Jesus was lost. Like, how would you like to be the parents that lost Jesus? Like, I got lost at a Chicago auto show when I was little, but I'm not the Messiah of the world. Like, how'd you like to be Jesus and be, like, they don't know where he's at. For like three days, they're hunting for him. Where is Jesus? And after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said unto them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? Now get the irony here that just really see what Jesus is saying. It's like if you're a 12 year old boy and you're lost where do you go you go home like i would hope that if my son was lost in the neighborhood or got lost and he was able to find his way the one place he needs to go you go. i know where my house is i'm going home this is the it's it's humorous if you look at what jesus is really saying it's like why have you been looking at me for three days why didn't you just come to my father's house he's in the temple He is claiming, at 12 years old, he's claiming to be God's son. He's like, Mary Joseph, I love you. Mary, you're my mom. Joseph, I was at my dad's house. You should have known to look for me at home. Story of uh, a while back of a child that went missing. And they searched frantically for quite a while. And the end of the story was the child was underneath the bed. It's like, well, how did you not look there the first time? You didn't look hard enough because where was the child at? It's where you would expect to be the child to be. This is all Jesus is saying is, why were you looking for me? I was at home. I was in my father's house. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They couldn't quite yet. This is what I'm saying. They could not yet, even though the angel spoke to Mary and they knew all this, they, their, their finite minds were having a hard time wrapping around what Jesus was really saying. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mo- even Jesus submitted to his parents, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The question about what Jesus was doing between 12 and 30, is we never see him between 12 and 30, this is the answer. He was increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He was preparing for what God had The ministry for him. Even Jesus had to follow the process of maturing as a man to minister his own gospel message. The point being the setting of all this is just so ordinary. He came into this world as a light to penetrate the darkness. So the last few weeks we've been last several months we've been going walking through the gospel of John. And we'll always go back to John 1 because the Christmas story is found in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word of God is eternal. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is both. The eternal Word of God is both God and it is with God. It is sameness and it is a distinction. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus would cry out, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." And the enemy, the Satan, hated the darkness. He hated the light. He is pure darkness. And so he tries to extinguish the light. So he has, he you know, King Herod commits this monstrous act. He hears of this king being born and all he can see is that I'm the king. And if there's a king that's being born, this child must be killed because he's he's a threat to me. So what does he do? He goes into the land and he says, He commands this army, go find every male child two years and younger and kill him. It was a prophecy fulfilled from the Old Testament that this would happen. Can you imagine being a family and in comes the military. In comes a soldier and he says, I have to take your child. And he takes the child off and he kills it. Because we are not going to take the chance of letting the light of the world have a chance. The conception of Jesus was miraculous. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceives. The scriptures refer to Mary as the mother of Jesus, but never refer to Joseph as his father because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is a, this is a big claim to make. This is not a claim that is foreign in the Roman culture. Emperors would consider themselves divine. They were the divine son of the gods. So here Jesus is is challenging that, saying, I am the son of the one true God of Israel, a claim that had not been made, a claim that got him killed. For claiming to be the Son of God. And as the Son, He is fully 100% God Himself, the divinity and the humanity are intertwined. He is God and He is man. And He came to dwell among us in His humanity for over 33 years. God was with us in the flesh. The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. God is with us because Jesus Christ is in us the hope of glory. I could not make it through and I don't want to try to make it through this life knowing that God couldn't be with me. Or in me. I don't want to do this without Him. Life is hard enough without doing it without God. In the midst of a world that is saturated in chaos and confusion and uncertainty, I am so thankful that God is with us. And Jesus did not come to earth for a vacation. He did not treat our world like a holiday inn. I'm going to check in here for 33 years. I'm going to check out and I'll be gone. He came to stay among us forever. And after the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, the last words that Matthew records Jesus saying is, Teaching then to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the promise that Jesus gives. I am with you forever. I am never leaving you. I'm never going to forsake you. I am with you always. And he turns around and ascends up into heaven. Like, I'm never going to leave you. And then what he does, takes off and leaves. After he ascends into the sky, they watch him go. His followers go back to Jerusalem and they have a prayer meeting. And John, Jesus had already promised the Holy Spirit in John 14 that he would send, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, in Acts 1, I think it's 5, he says, you know, go back to Jerusalem and wait, pray for the promise of the Father. Like, we're gonna, I'm going to send you a promise. I'm leaving you, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. What is he sending? He's sending power to be witnesses. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth so he leaves physically but the God of the universe comes back in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. That was the Christ in you that Paul wrote about. Jesus comes back in the form of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit issues forth from from God, it is the spirit of the Father, it is the spirit of Jesus Christ, the greatest split in church history that has ever happened in Christianity, happened in the year a little after 1000, and they split, and it's still today, you have Roman Catholicism and you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, two separate movements in Christianity, massive the largest in the, under the heading of Christianity, they're still larger than anything Protestant worldwide, but they split over one word and one idea. Does the Holy Spirit come from Christ or does it just come from the Father? Just this massive split. We embrace the side, all of Protestant Christianity embraces the side that the Holy Spirit is from jesus christ it is the spirit of christ within us that manifests himself through the power of the holy spirit paul writes to the church in thessalonica thessalonica and says for this we declare to you by a word from the lord so we have god with us in the birth of christ we have god in us through the power of the baptism of the holy spirit And now we have the future return of Christ. All of these are Advent ideas. So Paul talks about the future coming of the Lord. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, so he's speaking of whatever generation exists, is alive when Jesus returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There will be a generation of people who never see physical death. That's what Paul's teaching. The people that are alive at the time of Christ will never die a physical death. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. There's nothing subtle about the return of Christ. I think this is what Paul's trying to get us to see. This is all imagery. This is all metaphors to say the return of Christ is not going to be subtle. He's going to descend with a cry with a voice, with a sound of a trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Whatever that looks like, we know that all of those who have died in faith are going to rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. I'll unpack this more in the Sermon on the Return of Christ. Um, well it's tempting for me to jump down a rabbit trail there but I'm not going to go there Uh, because of a manger we have light in the world because of Calvary light defeats darkness this is what happens at Calvary light defeats darkness had a few years ago I was going to send out an email every day in January for 31 days of prayer. And it would go to the entire church, whoever signed up for this email newsletter, we would say, pray for this today, pray for this today. And all we did is we took what came from another organization that they sent it nationwide, and we would take that, I would take that email, and I would massage it for our local church, and then I would resend it. And one of those came one day and it said, pray that Satan would be defeated. And I went, Oh, you're 2,000 years late on that prayer request. You don't ever have to pray for Satan to be defeated. The prophecy of Eve, you know, your, your, the heel, your heel is going to bruise and crush his head is speaking of the serpent. Like Satan is defeated, Christ defeats death at the cross, and light is introduced into the world. Not yet, we're not, there's horrendous things going on in the world, but the light of Jesus Christ has, if you look at the progression the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of setbacks, but so many things are different than they were 2,000 years ago because the light continually reveals things to us. So the manger, we have light. Calvary, light defeats darkness. Pentecost, light dwells inside of us. So I I want you to see and get this sequence. Manger, light comes. Calvary, light wins. Pentecost, light dwells inside of us. And because of his second coming and the consummation of his kingdom that we just read about in Paul, we will be with him forever. The greatest promise that I see in the coming of the Lord at the return when Christ returns is the last phrase, so shall we always be with the Lord. We Once Jesus comes back, we're always with him. When the day is just dark with despair, he is light and he is with you. When, when darkness settles over your soul and You hear every dreaded word from the doctor and it just drains all feeling from your body. Know that the light is within you in that moment. When sin rears its ugly head in a relationship and it spews darkness, Christ is with you. God came to be with us in the manger so that He could be for us. God is with us. I've said this several times. I say this often, but... It's not automatically good news that God is with us. If God hates my sin, and He does, and He is going to judge me for my sin, and He will judge sin, is the idea of God showing up in flesh a good idea? Is that good news? Well, I don't know. If I know that I have to answer for my sins and that God hates my sin... And he's going to show up in the flesh why is that good news and the reason it's good news is that god is with us so that he could be for us at the end of the majestic chapter of romans 8 paul asks the question if god is for us who can be against us and god being for you it's not just that god is on your side the picture is not you're out playing ball And God is on the sidelines cheering you on. I'm for you. I'm behind you. I'm cheering you on. That's not what the verse means. Before God was for you, He was against you because you were a sinner. Sin is so infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy God that just one sin deserves the full brunt of God's wrath. The question is not how could a loving God send people to hell the question is how could a holy God not judge sin he's holy and the sin offends his holiness because of the gospel and yes I'm going to sneak the gospel into a Christmas sermon I'm going to sneak the gospel in every chance I get because the gospel the death of Jesus In my place for my sin, because of the gospel, God is no longer against me. He is now for me because of his love. This is what, like, why did Christ come? Why was God willing to do this? To send his own son? It's like, who killed Jesus? Romans 3, God killed Jesus. He put him forward, Paul says in Romans 3 as a propitiation, as a sacrifice for my sin. The love of God is why Christ came. It's why John 3.16 is so central. I don't think it's an accident that people gravitate to that scripture so much. I understand that today, somewhere in a football stadium, somebody will hold up a John 3.16 sign. Why that verse is because it's so central in the heart of man to know that, God so loved the world because if God is not love then none of this works he's going to come at me as a judge he's going to destroy me rightfully so he's going to declare me guilty rightfully so it's only the gospel only works because God is love we all stand in the courtroom of eternity with God on our side as both advocate he's our defense attorney so I'm standing in the courtroom I'm standing behind the table. I have my defense attorney here next to me. God is my advocate. James says we have an advocate with the Father. But he's also also my judge. And what happens, what the gospel is in a nutshell, is that the judge of the universe, and you'll never see this in a court of law, but what happens in the court of the universe is the judge sitting behind the bench ready to strike the gavel, declare me guilty, stands up, takes off his robe of judgment, walks down and walks beside me and says, I'm now going to be your defense attorney. That's what, this is the language that Paul and James are saying. And then he walks back up to the bench and he says, son, daughter, not guilty, not guilty. Why? Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel, Romans 8. The whole point of Emmanuel, God with us, is so that God can be for us. So every accusation lobbed against you in the courtroom of eternity is met with a resounding not guilty from the judge of the universe, all because God is with us in a manger so he could be for us in the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8.1 The lack of condemnation is not an emotional state, this is, this is so important because this is where people get hung up. They feel condemned. They feel the guilt of the weight of their sin. I feel condemnation. I have a past. I have a past that nobody knows about. I've done things nobody knows about. Boy, if people only knew what I had done. And you feel that guilt. But the condemnation in Romans 8 is not a feeling It's just legal fact. There's no condemnation. You have been declared innocent in the courtroom. Not because you didn't do it. You did it. You you committed the sin. I committed the infraction. But Christ stood in my place and took my sin. I just read this the other night in Paul's writings. He bore my sin upon his body. Whose sin? Mine. Whose body? His. He took my sin upon His body. And because of that, sin will be judged. Sin was poured out and judged upon Christ at Calvary. R.C. Sproul famously said, we talk about the God of judgment in the Old Testament, but the greatest judgment of God is in the New Testament when God pours His wrath out upon His Son at Calvary. That's the judgment of God poured out for your sin and my sin. So I close with six reasons for the coming of Christ in the manger. Number one, He came as a ransom for many. Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. The reason we need a ransom to be paid for us is that we have sold ourselves into sin. and We have been alienated from a holy God. When Jesus gave His life as a ransom, our slave masters, sin, death, and the devil had to give up their claim on us, and the result was that we could be adopted into the family of God. Number two, He came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5, Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Nobody today, you may go for an annual checkup, but nobody today, is going to any emergency room around here and walking in and saying, I need a doctor. I'm going to pay your high copay premium in this ER. I need a doctor. What's wrong? Nothing. I just want to see a doctor. Nobody does that. It doesn't even make sense. This is what Jesus is saying. Those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners to repentance. It's sinners who need to go to church, and that's all of us with a sinful nature. I read the story yesterday of a church planner who said the second service they held, he was so excited that these people showed up in his living room, second service. He said the service ended with um, a husband. And wife getting in a fight at the end of the service and the husband literally chasing her out the door down the street and all the men in the church had to chase him down the street and grab him and and subdue him And he said welcome to church planting that's my this is how we start our our church plant well that's unfortunate but that couple needed to be there they needed to hear the gospel there was obviously brokenness there what are you gonna say to that couple well I'm gonna say the couple We want you to come back. You can't act like that in church, but we want you to come back and sit, listen and hear the gospel and let the Spirit of God transform your life so that doesn't happen anymore. He came to call sinners to repentance. It's the meaning of Christmas. Let's get the meaning of Christmas. He came, there's a baby in a manger for one reason, I'm a sinner. That's what Christmas is about. It points to my guilt and says, I need help. Number three, He came sight. He came to give sight to the blind. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. I have come as light into the world that whosoever believes in me might not remain in darkness. He didn't just come to ransom. He didn't just come to call. He came to open our eyes so that people can see the light. I can stand here week after week after week and preach till I'm blue in the face, but unless the Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of the heart that Satan has damnedably darkened, unless the Spirit does the work, you'll sit here and you'll think this means nothing and has no relevance to me. We need the supernatural, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to transform the eyes of our heart, to open them so that we can see the light of the glory of the gospel. Jesus Christ that's why Christ came that those who do not see may see that's the meaning of Christmas number four Christ came to divide households Matthew 10 do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to set a mother to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes will be those in his own household those are radical words from Jesus the point of this is not that God loves division and strife the point is that strife and division caused by allegiance to Jesus are better than no strife and division and no allegiance to Jesus let me say that again. The point of his words is that having strife and division caused by allegiance to Christ is better than saying, I won't have strife and I won't have allegiance to Christ. Jesus is saying, I will be cherished and honored and exalted to the number one position in your life, no matter what it does in the rest of your life. I have firsthand witnessed. I've seen it with my eyes, women who were physically abused for one reason they came to church. I know of women who would be dropped off by their pastor who knew what they were in store for when they got home because they went to church. I've seen the broken arm. I've seen the cast with my own eyes. I know what that looks like. what faith what inspiring faith to look at a woman and say i love jesus so much that i i will put up and suffer for anything to be able to worship my god now i know there's a whole other conversation of what needs to happen authorities need to be called 100 percent absolutely That man needs to answer for his actions, absolutely. He needs to be held accountable legally, absolutely. But as we know, a lot of times those situations don't work out like we want them to. And a woman says, I'm going to church. I will have strife in my household to love Jesus. Something radical happens to people when they see the light. They see everything differently because they have a new set of eyes. They have a new master and they are wonderfully free from the fear and guilt because of that transformation. That's the meaning of Christmas. Number five, he came to save from divine condemnation. We already touched on this. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is, this is John three seventeen. We love john three sixteen for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life it's not the end of the conversation the next words were for god sent not his son into the world to condemn it he sent jesus into the world so that people might be saved he who believes in him is not condemned he who does not believe is already condemned that's the meaning of christmas Number six, as I close, ask Sherry to come back to the music. He came to give us eternal life. I'm not in John this morning as an opening text, but as we've worked through John the last several months, the thing that I've keep stressing and hoping you'll see is the connection between our belief and eternal life. I preached one of the sermons from John. You will never see death. You might see physical death if we die before the return of Christ, and maybe we all will. Our time is limited on this earth. Maybe I'll see the return of Christ, maybe I won't. It's really immaterial. Because if I die of his physical death, I die in him, and I will live again unto Christ at the resurrection, and I will live forever with him. I did not intend to go back to John 3.16 as many times as I, I did today. It was not in my notes, but we keep circling back to John 3.16. The, the problem, it's not the problem with the verse, it's the problem with our minds and our hearts is when we hear something so much it loses its meaning. There's a term for that even in psychology where you become so familiar with something that you lose all meaning of what you're actually saying where you've got to say, okay, stop. Like, taste it again for the first time. Hear what the text is saying. He's beginning an idea that's going to echo throughout John chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Believe and have everlasting life. God loved the world so much He gave His only Son. That is the love like if you're a father and you put yourself in those shoes and you say, what would it take to give my children up to a horrifying death what kind of love would i have to have for something else to do that for god so loved he gave his only son whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life christmas means that god sent his son into the world so that we could believe and have everlasting life christ comes in a manger To be with us, to establish his kingdom. Christ dies on a cross so that he could be for us and not against us, so that I could have life. Christ comes back through the power of his Holy Spirit. Christ ascends into the heavens. Christ is in the heavens, and Peter, preaching in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, says, the Son ascended to the Father is sitting on the right hand of the Father. The Father has given the promise of the Holy Spirit to the Son, and the Son, Jesus, has issued forth this Spirit to you. That's what you're seeing here today. That's Acts 2.33. Peter says the Father gave the promise to, the, to Christ who ascended and is sitting in His right hand. The Holy Spirit falls. It is the Spirit of Jesus. All those people that day that understood that, like, you and I have never met Jesus in the flesh. We just haven't. But people then, in the book of Acts, did. And their consolation was that Christ came back. Like, this is Jesus. This is the Jesus that we walked with, that we ate dinner with, that at night we laid our heads down as we're traveling. Uh, there's, there's 13 of us, right? There's 13 guys. Jesus is one of them. We've all bunked next to Jesus. And now he's gone but now he's back through the promise of the holy spirit that is the meaning of christmas so i am excited to delve more into this the next couple weeks and really talk about what it means for christ to be in us through the power of his holy spirit what that means if if the holy spirit is just an emotion and a feeling It's like we've missed 99% of what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in our lives. Can it be an experience? Yes. Is it more than an experience? Resoundingly, yes. And then the hope of the future return of Jesus. Jesus is going to come back to this earth. It's really going to happen. What does that mean for the people of God? Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then I'll ask Sherry to lead us in a closing song. Let's pray. Father, this morning, Your Word has went forth and touched our hearts. Not my words, but Your inspired divine Word has went and touched our minds and inspired the affections of our heart. Lord, we have one hour a week together with Your people. We have day after day of living and slogging our way through a a dark and broken world. But I pray that the power that happens in this one hour is transformative in the lives of all of us. Myself, every person that's here, Lord, that the seed that was sown this morning would not be carried away, but that it would find its place, its lodging. It would take hold, it would take root. Lord, so that on Tuesday mornings on the job, on a Wednesday evening in the home, when the chaos of life is happening around us, that there would be that still small voice of the Holy Spirit that would speak to us, that would guide us back to your word, back to a place of faithfulness to you, to know that how we ought to think, how we ought to act, how we ought to live. Grant us this week, Lord, strength for the journey minister to us in ways that only you can do we ask this in jesus name amen Amen.